Good morning. Good to see all of you here this morning. My name is Connor Bales. I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here. And uh, welcome to worship at Prestonwood. If you have your Bibles, go with me to John chapter 2. Uh, John chapter 2. Just a couple of quick things uh, to remind you of. One of them is that if you are new to Prestonwood and you are curious about the things of our church, maybe uh, you're exploring membership or thinking about getting connected with us, I want to invite you to join us next Sunday for Next Step. Next Step is a class which will tell you a little bit about the mission, vision, values of our church. It tells you what we believe, which informs what we do. It does not obligate you to membership, but it is something that we ask all of our members to attend. So we would encourage you to come and to explore with us. We want to connect with you. You can register online or just meet us uh, when we're dismissed right out in the middle of the atrium at Guest Central. Next Sunday, 10 a.m., next step. I also want to take a moment just to thank you. Last weekend was incredible, and uh, what a wonderful Easter celebration for our uh, church, and so many of you volunteered, and you sacrificed your family and your weekend plans, uh, and you made adjustments in your schedule to be able to accommodate and to serve, and as your pastor, I just want to take a moment to say thank you. That's not lost on us. I so greatly appreciate all of you and your willingness uh, to roll up your sleeves, and we did have an awesome Easter weekend celebration. And so, as you saw from that sermon bumper just a moment ago, we're continuing this series, Tell Me the Story of Jesus. But this morning, we're launching a little series within the series. We're going to cover for the next several weeks the seven sign miracles of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of John. And so, I'm really looking forward to this. I hope that it is an encouragement and a blessing. Uh, to you. And as we get started, I'm going to give you just a little bit of background on the nature of the miracles that are recorded in the scripture about Jesus, generally speaking. And then I'm going to give you some background that is specific to this particular miracle that we're going to see and study today, which is Jesus turning water into wine, as recorded here in John chapter 2. Now, a little bit of background about generally the miracles that are recorded about uh, Jesus over his three-year life and earthly ministry that we see from the four Gospels uh, uh, in our New Testament. Scholars tell us there are about 36, maybe 37 individual miracles uh, recorded over the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. But I need to be clear with you. That is not an exhaustive list of all of the miraculous work that Jesus himself did in his life and across those three years of earthly ministry. In fact, while you're in John chapter 2, I'm just going to remind you of what John says near the very end of his book regarding the miraculous work of Jesus Christ. He says this in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Just one chapter further, in chapter 21, verse 25, John summarizes his thoughts about Jesus like this. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. And were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so we understand that not every miraculous work that God did in Jesus Christ has been written down. Even though the Gospels record a number of the individual miracles of Christ, it is not an exhaustive 
list. But I want to cover just a few things that are specific to this particular miracle that I think are necessary for us to have the greatest understanding of what it is that Christ has done. The first is this, that Jesus definitely uh, turns water into wine at this wedding celebration. But weddings in the first century Jewish culture were different in their celebration, most particularly in the length of celebration as compared to the way we celebrate weddings today. So normally our modern weddings are over a weekend, right? So they might include a rehearsal dinner, they might have a bride's luncheon, and then the wedding itself. It's usually over a weekend, right? But a wedding for a first century Jewish family would have lasted about a week. And it would have been a huge social gathering, like ours are social gatherings, but it would have also had a massive spiritual implication. And a good Christian wedding should as well. But the length of those two celebrations was, in fact, different. Here's the second thing I should tell you. Some extra-biblical ancient Jewish literature that records this story of Jesus turning water into wine at this wedding celebration in Cana uh, tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is the aunt of the bridegroom who is being married. And so that might give us an understanding or an inclination as to A, uh, how Jesus got invited to the wedding, right? If his mama is the aunt of the bridegroom, then that would explain how Jesus and his disciples got an invitation to the event. In addition to that, it might also tell us why Mary got stressed out when the wine runs out at the wedding. Because as a good aunt, she's pitched in to help with this family celebration. Does that make sense? And so uh, there's an extra biblical evidence that would help us to believe that maybe Mary is related to the bridegroom. Here's the third thing I want to point out as it relates to this particular miracle. Although Jesus certainly turns this water into wine at the wedding, as we're going to see, this Bible story makes a terrible example for anyone who is trying to justify why they believe it is okay to drink alcohol. Now, I have said this many times before, but I believe alcohol consumption is a wisdom issue. And my experience, both personally and pastorally, is that the majority of us don't have the wisdom to do that responsibly, okay? But trying to use this story of Jesus turning water into wine as an evidence or a justification for someone uh, finding it to be okay makes a misunderstanding of what it is that God has done in the miracle of turning water into wine. And then lastly, while each of the miracles that Jesus performs have a very real and physical and practical result from whatever it is that Christ has done. They also, more importantly, have a deeper spiritual implication. So clearly there is a practical, physical benefit that comes from these miracles of Jesus, but they also have a deeper, more significant spiritual implication that is worthy of our attention every single time that we study them. And so I want us to study this particular miracle. And I think what I want us to do today, I'm going to try to teach this miracle, but by um, drawing out for us some things about the characters that are included within this particular story, this wedding celebration here at Cana. I hope that this is a helpful way for us to study it. I've never taught this miracle before, but I want us to read it in its entirety. Then we'll examine each of the characters that are found within it and what I believe are some things that we can learn 
from it. So John chapter 2, we're going to read the first 11 verses of the chapter together. John chapter 2, and let's start together in verse number 1. If you're there, say, I got it. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, just going to quickly pause and say that in our modern reading of this uh, mother and son exchange, it feels curt to say the least. You know what I mean? Like if my mom came up to me and told me uh, that we had a problem, I'm not going, woman, she's right there. I'm still scared of her. Okay? It feels curt, but listen, that's a modern understanding of an ancient language. Here's what is really, it's really a conversation of endearment. Jesus is saying, ma'am. Right? He's saying, ma'am. And so she's saying, she's going to him with a sincere uh, uh, um, problem, and, and he's saying, ma'am, my, my hour hasn't come yet. In other words, it's not yet time for me to reveal who I am and what God has sent for me uh, to do. So this is actually a conversation of endearment, but in our modern understanding, it might be read as maybe an awkward exchange between a mom and a son. Mama, I love you. I just want to go on record. <laughs> now, I'm going to Again, point out some things that I think are important for us to see regarding the characters within this story that I want to draw out for you and I to be able to rightly appreciate what it is that God does. So if you're a note taker, I hope this is an encouragement to you. I want to encourage you to write this down. The first is the joy of Jesus. I want to draw your attention to the joy of Jesus. This very first miracle takes place at a wedding, a place of celebration, a place filled with excitement and joy, a place where a family would gather for more than a week uh, to celebrate the significance of this union between husband and between wife. And, and I want you to notice that unlike the other character that we have seen this early in the Gospels of great spiritual significance, which is John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist was a recluse. So he lived out in the wilderness. He wore a jacket of camel's hair. He ate locusts and honey, right? So he was more withdrawn, very spiritually significant, but much more reclusive in his nature and in his ministry. When God shows up, he comes to the party. And notice the party that he attends. It is a wedding, a place of celebration, which again, I want to draw your attention to two realities about the joy of Jesus. The first is we see this joy expressed at a wedding, at a marriage ceremony. So if you ever want to know how is it that God feels about the gift of a husband and a wife, how is it that God feels about the gift of marriage, he celebrates it. Now, this is not the only place in the scriptures where we get a, a clear picture on God's design for marriages. We see that prior to the fall in Genesis chapter 2 when God officiates the very first wedding between Adam and Eve. We also see that in Matthew chapter 19 when Jesus echoes uh, the goodness of God officiating the first wedding between Adam and Eve. But here is another biblical evidence that would show us how God feels about the gift of marriage, by the way, as he designed it. He celebrates it. He has joy over it. God came to the party and he was excited to celebrate the union of husband and wife. Here's the second thing I want to show you about the joy of Jesus. This story shows us that God can take the social 
and he can make it special. That God, his presence sanctifies the ordinary and he can make it sacred. That is the power of Jesus' presence. And by the way, that should also mark those of us who belong to him. That because we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we are empowered in the very same way Jesus was, then you and I ought to bring that joy of Jesus into the social environments where we show up as well. So, for example, I'll just tell you, here's an ordinary example. I like to play golf. And occasionally when you play golf, if you don't have a full foursome uh, uh, filled out, then they'll pair you with another person who is also wanting to play. Uh, Sometimes you can get paired with an individual who doesn't have the joy of Jesus. And you know that based on the first time they hit a shot that doesn't go where they want it to. Okay? And so I've I've been paired with individuals not too long ago. I got paired with somebody, and he was so mad every time he hit a bad shot. He's taking his club and throwing it or banging against his golf bag and and he's cussing and, and pitching a fit. And I was like, dude, we shook hands on the first tee. You're an insurance salesman. Why are you so upset? You don't do this for a living. Right? Like, why, why are you? I mean, I'm competitive too. I want it to go where I want it to go. But, like, you're freaking out over nothing. Here's what I would say. For you and I who belong to God and we are filled with the Holy Spirit of Christ, then we ought to bring the joy of Jesus into our social settings and also make them sacred and special by God's grace. Right? So we don't run from parties, right? Some of the wives are elbowing the husbands. See, I told you we should go. Listen, that's between y'all. What I'm saying is when you go to the parties, make sure you bring the joy of Jesus with you. Right? Everywhere we go, Jesus had joy, and he shows us that. Here's the second thing I want to show you. The trust of Mary in Jesus. We see the joy of Jesus, but I want you to know, notice the trust of Mary in Jesus. She had such confidence in Jesus such trust in his ability to change things that her instructions to the servants are simple but profound. She says, do whatever he tells you. And again, if Mary is the helpful aunt that is a part of putting together and organizing all the festivities around this wedding celebration, then she's feeling the weight and the responsibility of the wine running out. In fact, now, culturally, there would have been shame socially for the family that is supposed to provide for this wonderful occasion and event. But also spiritually, there could have actually been fines from the Jewish rabbi, from the Jewish leadership, because there was a spiritual implication to this celebration and to the gathering uh, that was taking place. And, and so she feels the weight and responsibility. And, and yet, what I think Mary shows us is that at times, we're likewise going to feel like we're on empty. There are times when you and I likewise are going to feel like we're running out. And in those moments, we need to, like Mary, display the same kind of trust and confidence in Jesus Christ who can change things. And she evidences that. She's like, do whatever he says. And why would she say it with such confidence, so simply, with such brevity, but believing in such significance? Well, because she knows Jesus is the only one who can change this. Some of you are in a circumstance right now, and you feel like you're on empty. You feel like you're running out. You've exhausted every option, and you're not sure what's left in your tank. And I'm telling you, you need to exude the confidence of Mary, not in yourself, not in your circumstances, but in Jesus. Because guess what? He's the one who can change things. You with me? So that's why Paul writes to the church in Philippi and says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
Jesus. I've heard testimony after testimony of families that have chosen to trust and exhibit supernatural confidence in Jesus Christ as a part of their proclaim initiative. They're just believing that God's going to provide. And so they're going to be obedient to whatever it is he's asked them to do. I love the joy of Jesus, and I love the trust of Mary in him. Here's the third thing I want to point out. I want to draw to your attention the obedience of the servants to Jesus. The obedience of the servants to Jesus. I've never seen this before, even though I've read this miracle account many times. But the Bible says Jesus gave instruction for the servants to take the six water jars and to fill them. And guess what? Simple instruction, that's exactly what they did. Again, look with me in verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Now, if you mark or highlight in your Bibles, and you should, underline the entirety of the second half of that verse. And I want to draw your attention to why. And they filled them up to the brim. Now, I love the detail of the Bible for reasons like this. The instruction that Jesus gave was simple. Fill the jars of water. But the response of the servants in their obedience was not that they filled them halfway, not that they filled them three-quarters of the way, but what? They filled them to the brim. See, obedience is a good thing, but obedience with expectance that God's going to provide, that's a better thing. And the servants are showing an obedience rooted in an expectance that God is going to do something supernatural that could only be assigned to him. And there are some of us who are here today. And God has told us to be obedient about something. And I think this morning he is not only reminding you of your need to be obedient, but he is compelling you to be obedient with the expectation that he is going to provide. He's telling you to fill it to the brim. And I don't know what it is that you are being delayed in your obedience to God, but let's call delayed obedience what it is. It's disobedience. But I think God not only wants some of us in the room this morning to be obedient to what he's called us to do, but he wants us to fill it to the brim. Obedience with an expectation that God is going to provide. I'll just share with you last week, uh, obviously we celebrated Easter weekend, which was incredible. But we had a stressful week as a church leading up to that. If you don't know, um, because we're a part of our Proclaim initiative is we're relocating our staff offices uh, uh, to some uh, property directly across the street here. And we needed to begin some of that work so that we can quickly convert all of that uh, square footage and space in our facility to children's ministry as a part of our expansion. And so as a part of relocating the staff offices, uh, we needed to run some underground utilities uh, over to that space so that we could be connected between uh, the two buildings. And so we have a contractor that was working uh, on boring underground utilities, and unintentionally, accidentally, they, they punched a hole through an electrical supply line to the building. And we lost power for two and a half days on Easter week. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not over it. Okay? That's not ideal in the church world. That's not ideal. And last Wednesday, we needed to make a decision as a ministry staff. So I gather with Pastor Lance and other staff members, and we needed to make a ministry decision about what we were going to do based on what we believe when we could have power restored regarding our Wednesday night midweek ministry activities. And we had to make the decision that we were going to be unable to have them on Wednesday night. But I felt compelled by God. I really believe this was of the Holy Spirit that we needed to gather together for prayer. 
And so, in a very organic, as organized as we possibly could be, we used social media, tried to get the word out, and our ministry staff led a group of people who were able to join us for prayer in the parking lot last Wednesday night. And we prayed specifically in anticipation of Easter weekend. And what God made clear to me is that when there is a physical lack of power supply, I'm going to bring to you a supernatural power supply if you'll simply ask me to provide it. And guess what? We had 8,778 people show up for Easter weekend at Prestonwood without counting Good Friday. And we had dozens and dozens and dozens of people who stood up and responded to the gospel and their life was forever changed. And I believe. And I believe that is because we filled it to the brim. Right? We didn't fill it halfway, throw our hands up. We didn't fill it three quarters away and said, let's just see what God does. We filled it to the brim. And we were going to be obedient to what we believe God was calling us to do, which was to petition him in power through prayer. I love the obedience of the servants to Jesus. Number four, I want to draw your attention to the blessing of the wedding party from Jesus. The blessing of the wedding party from Jesus. Now, I told you earlier Every miracle has a physical element to be certain, but they have a deeper spiritual implication. And here's where you can see that physical, I mean, that spiritual implication from the physical provision. After the water jars are filled, Jesus tells the servants to draw some out, take it to the master of the feast for tasting. And then the Bible records that the master of the feast, who brags on the bridegroom and his family for not following the usual tactic of good wine first, and then bad wine last. Instead, this celebration provided for the best wine last. And guess what? So does the celebration that comes by salvation through the work, that is the new wine of grace in Jesus Christ. You see, unlike the world's belief about how things are ordered and organized and intended to be, if you are in Christ Jesus, God saves the best for last. The world believes that whoever dies with the most wins. Whatever we can have in the here and the now is what matters most. But the kingdom of heaven is upside down. And it tells you whoever has the least will be elevated to first. Whoever is last will be seen with the most. Because God has saved in Christ Jesus the best for last. Which is why I need to be honest with you as it relates to the reality of heaven and hell and the here and the now. If you are in Christ Jesus, then this now is as close to hell as you will ever be. But conversely, if you are still dead in your trespasses and sins, then this now is as close to heaven as you'll ever be. And so, did you realize that according to the book of Revelation, the greatest wedding celebration of all time will be when Christ returns and when the bridegroom meets us as his bride and we celebrate with God forever at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And in that celebration, in that celebration, God wipes tears away, he writes wrongs, and he makes all things new. The question is, are you on the guest list? 
Are you on the guest list? Do you recognize that Jesus Christ turned water into wine to be sure, but the life and ministry and death and resurrection is new wine? And in Christ Jesus, he has saved his best for last. And so whereas the world tells you it all matters what you can glean and gain here and now, Christ shows you that no, 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 in me, I promise you it's best at the end. I love the blessing of the wedding party from Jesus, which leads me to the last. The last thing I would want to draw your attention to is the grace of God through Jesus. The grace of God through Jesus. Again, certainly a physical reality to the miracle of Christ, but a deeper spiritual implication, and this is what I mean. God's grace is overwhelmingly evident in this miracle provision of Jesus. Two thoughts on his grace here. The first is these six empty water jars are explained again within these first 11 verses as this miracle is retold for us. Uh, the, the six empty water jars are explained to us as uh, uh, jars of water for the purposes of purification, meaning that for those who were going to attend this wedding celebration, this wedding event, I told you that it is certainly social in its significance, but it's also deeply spiritual as well. And so the water jars of purification are for ceremonial cleansing so that people could clean themselves, could wash themselves, and be determined to be ceremonially clean, to be able to participate in the sacred celebration of this wedding. So it's important for you to see that the Hebrew number for incompletion is the number six. The Hebrew number for completion is the number seven. So Jesus shows us that what was incomplete in those six jars Despite the ritual and the religious and the ongoing necessity for a personal purification over and over and over again. Despite the necessity for your best effort to try to be made ceremonially clean. Jesus completes perfectly through his life, death, burial, and resurrection everything that is required for us to be determined eternally clean. And it's important that we recognize that. He's the only one who could provide it. And despite the best efforts of religious leaders and those who fall under their care to try to wash themselves through ritual and practice and participation over and over and over again, the Bible says it is the blood of the Lamb that washes and cleanses us so that we can be declared eternally righteous, clean before God. And Jesus shows us that. And here, here's the last thing I'll remind you about this grace work. You realize water's ordinary. A wine is not. That's what Jesus does. He takes what is ordinary, and by the work of his grace, he makes it extraordinary instead. And do you know the greatest evidence of that grace? It's you and me. Because I know that you're a snowflake and every single one of you are special and unique and personal just the way God made you. Yes. But you're also ordinary. A sinner. The commonality in this room is we're all equally sinful. 
and in desperate need of salvation. And God takes what is ordinary, that is you and I, and he makes it extraordinary, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but by his grace. This is the work of the gospel. This is the work of Jesus Christ. As he takes that which is plain and he makes it profound. And he does it in us and watch, he does it through us. At New Beginnings, where I came from in East Texas, it was a smaller church than our North Campus, substantially smaller, and it was a much uh, a less resourced church than our, the blessing we have here at Prestonwood as well. So we were always having to work really hard to try to stretch our resources and to try to figure out creative ways to meet needs. And so a couple of times, almost every year, we would have church work days. And uh, most often they were uh, work days for landscape improvements around the property, around the campus. Sometimes they were building improvements based on whatever project needed to be done. They were great times of fellowship and, and uh, for our spiritual family. And I can remember one church work day in particular. We were laying sod and planting flowers and mulching beds. And, and uh, so we had a whole bunch of people from the church that had shown up as a part of our church work day. And, uh, and this guy pulls into the parking lot um, and gets out, and we don't recognize him. And he comes up and he says, before, we, we just introduced ourselves and said, what's going on? He said, uh, I'm lost. And so immediately we just go into, okay, well, we're in Northwest Longview, so this is George Ritchie. And it, and it was not directionally lost. He was like, I'm lost. No, 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 I know where I am. I grew up here in Longview. I'm lost. He said, I keep reading this Bible that you guys talk about over and over and over again. I've even read all these stories about these water wells, and there's a woman sitting at the well, and then there's Jacob's well, and I don't know what any of it means. I know I'm lost. And I said, well, the Bible does talk a lot about wells, but it also tells us that God loves us so much that he sent his only son as living water, and whoever drinks of him never thirsts ever again. We got to share the gospel with that dude who just randomly showed up in the church parking lot because he saw there were cars there. And we got to lead him to Jesus Christ. Now listen, we're throwing sod. Ordinary. But God, in his grace, did something extraordinary and he changed somebody's life. That's grace. We didn't orchestrate that. We're trying to get green grass. But God says, no, no, I'm I'm doing something much, much greater. You see, I think there are times when we can be tempted to see the physical need as the greatest problem and we'll forfeit the understanding that Christ came to meet the spiritual need, which is the one that will last forever. But that's what his grace does. It takes what is ordinary and makes it extraordinary. And so the question is, what do we do with this Jesus? I'm under conviction. It's the only way I know to say it. Uh, because I had a conversation with uh, someone I ran into at Starbucks on Friday. And uh, she and her family came to Easter uh, with us last Sunday. And, uh, and, and they were in the overflow venue in the student ministry building. And this is a lady who's uh, been attending church for a long, long time, has had no relationship with God and, and been very, very honest about that. She's just curious about the faith, has great doubts about who God is and, and what Jesus has done. And, and so she's been willing to have conversations with others in our church. And she's been meeting in particular weekly uh, with another woman in our church who's been walking her through the gospel and trying to help her understand of God's great love. But it just never has clicked. And again, sweet person, 
very, very kind, wonderful family, but admittedly has no personal relationship with God. And last Sunday, when she came to church and we gave the invitation, in the student ministry building, watching on a screen, she prayed and gave her life to Jesus Christ. And what I am convicted of is that there are some of you who are in this room and likewise, you are disconnected from God. You have a great family. You're curious about the things of faith. You have a background with a family that raised you in the church or, or whatever your story happens to be. But when you are being gut level honest with yourself and with God, you would say, I have never been born again. And because I'm under conviction, this is not Easter week, this is the week after that, but I am going to plead with you. Look at me. If something happens to you today, God forbid there is a tragedy in your life this week and you have to stand before the creator of the universe and he says to you, why should you spend eternity with me? What are you going to say? When it's time for the invitation list to the greatest wedding celebration in all of history, is your name going to be on there? Because if you confess with your mouth that you have a need for God to save you and you believe in your heart, he's the only one who could. The Bible says your sins are forgiven and you will be given life everlasting with him. But there are some who are here and you're playing church. You're messing with your eternity. And if you're feeling conviction right now, that's not me. That's God speaking to you. I am pleading with you. There's new wine. You may think you're an empty jar, an empty vessel. And you've been trying all these things to make yourself clean over and over and over again. And I'm telling you, God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to do for you what you could never do for yourself. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He died a criminal's sinner's death as a substitute for you and I so that we might live. But he didn't stay dead. He's resurrected from the grave. He is alive. He is ruling. He is reigning. And when we choose to transfer our faith from self and circumstance and to give that over to God in Christ Jesus, the Bible says we're saved. And so I'm wondering if any of you are here and would be honest and say, I need to give my life to Jesus. In just a minute, I'm going to give you an invitation. It's an opportunity for you to do just that. Sure, you can stay in your seat. Sure, you can argue with yourself that it's going to be embarrassing. But God's love is so great that Jesus Christ has given himself, his life, in exchange for yours. And if you are in Christ, the reality for you is that this is the closest to hell you'll ever be. But if you're not, the reality for you is that this is the closest to heaven you'll ever be. There are others of you, and I think this morning what's stirred in your heart is that idea of obedience. 
but not just obedience, but obedience with expectance. I think God has prompted some of you to fill the jar to the brim. I don't know what that is. If you haven't told me, how would I know? But I think if God has spoken to your heart, let's come and pray and ask God to give you the boldness and the obedience to fill it to the brim and believe that Jesus is the only one who has the capacity to change it. Like, let's exhibit the same kind of trust as Mary had. Do whatever he says, because he's the only one who can change this circumstance. You feel empty, he's the only one who can fill you up. And, and there are some of you who are here this morning and you need a miracle, right? You need a miracle in your life. You need God to show up in a supernatural, miraculous way. And I'm willing to pray with you about that. So if you'll come forward and tell us what your need is, let's beg the God who works miracles to work one for you. Why wouldn't we? Right? He, he's turned water into wine. You think, you think he can't handle what you're navigating? He can absolutely provide. And we're going to trust him regardless of how that provision happens to be. You want to join our church, you need to be baptized like Aiden. You saw the courage of that young lady this morning who was baptized. Then come forward and grab the hand of one of our ministers and let them know the decision that you need to make. I'm going to pray when I say amen. We're going to stand, we're going to worship, and you have an opportunity to respond. I believe there are many of you who need to. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you so much for what you've done. Thank you for who you are. God, I pray as we enter into this time of invitation and worship response, God, that we would be a people who are obedient to what it is that you've called us to do because of who it is that you have declared yourself to be. God, thank you for new wine. Thank you for doing in our lives what only could be attributed to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.